Blog Talk Radio. Welcome to Let's Talk America with host Shana Thornton, aired right here on the ever-popular Blog Talk Radio Network. We are truly excited to be with you on the air. We want to once again welcome everyone to this national show for the entire community. If you are a regular listener, then you already know that we bring an array of topics to the table that are relevant and important. With our featured guests, we aim to offer insight and expertise that hopefully will impact and shape lives in a positive manner. Stay connected with the show, and please continue to share us with everyone you know. We continue to receive rave reviews about the shows. Thank you, thank you, thank you. Keep submitting the feedback. Our awesome listeners really influence and inspire this show. We have a very exclusive guest and a relevant topic on today's show. We will discuss classism and its impact on a college education. This subject can be very touchy, but it's one that needs to be talked about. Does class matter in terms of success? We as a national community often talk about sending our youth to college. But what factors help determine the actual completion of that college education? Does class influence job placement after college? I certainly acknowledge and believe that willpower and hard work go a long way. But is there a possibility that class and other factors shape our very attitudes about success and our perspective of the road to success? Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong co-authored a book that dug into all of this and more. Dr. Armstrong is our featured exclusive guest on today's show. She and Dr. Laura Hamilton wrote the critically acclaimed Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. The book explores social class and higher education. The book published by the renowned Harvard University Press has already created a lot of talk by nearly everyone. The buzz is out there. The New York Times and many others have already featured commentary about the new book. I myself read about the very book in Time Magazine recently. Knowledge is power, and listeners, you all know what I say constantly. Sharing knowledge is even more powerful. The conversation is critical to our national community. This is Real Talk for Real People on Let's Talk America with host Shana Thornton. Lastly, at the end of this segment, we will feature live jazz music from the ever-popular Henley Varner Band. This show is jam-packed, and we certainly have only 30 minutes, so let's roll. Let's get it all started right now. It's shout-out corner time. This is a time where we briefly say hello and express acknowledgement to our loyal listeners and supporters worldwide. First up. Hello, Mr. and Mrs. Hiram and Mary Springle of Greenville, South Carolina. Thank you for all of your support. We so appreciate you. Also, hello to the members of the Brown Debating Union at the Elite Brown University in Providence, Rhode Island. Thanks for tuning in. We appreciate you connecting with the show. Also, thanks for letting us know that our topics keep you connected. 
Lastly, hello to Cynthia Manson and the CRM Productions Company. Keep making thought-provoking films. Keep us tuned in every Tuesday night at 7.30 p.m. Eastern Standard Time. Do you want a shout-out from Let's Talk America with host Shana Thornton? Or do you want to tell the world about your own community news? Share your news with us. Simply email us at letstalkshana at gmail.com, and I will put your good news on the air. Right now, we will quickly go over our words of inspiration for today's show. And many of you know this is the segment of the show where I provide quotations and statements I personally find profound and meaningful. Today we have true words of wisdom. An old Chinese proverb says, learning is a treasure that will follow its owner everywhere. Again, learning is a treasure that will follow its owner everywhere. Dynamic words to live by. Beautiful, beautiful, beautiful. Keep learning. You're never too young. You're never too old to learn because the knowledge truly does stay with us. Speaking of learning, let's get to our featured guest. But first, listen to this important lead-in. Two young women, dormitory mates, embark on their education at a big state university. Five years later, One is earning a good salary at a prestigious accounting firm. With no loans to repay, she lives in a fashionable apartment with her fiancé. The other woman, saddled with burdensome debt and a low GPA, is still struggling to even finish her degree in tourism. In an era of skyrocketing tuition and mounting concern over whether college is really worth it, The new book, Paying for the Party, is an indispensable contribution to the dialogue accessing the state of American higher education, a powerful expose of unmet obligations and misplaced priorities. It explains in vivid detail why so many leave college with so little to show for it. Drawing on findings from a five-year interview study, Elizabeth Armstrong, who is a very well-known sociologist, and Laura Hamilton bring us to the campus of the so-called MU, a flagship Midwestern public university where we follow a group of women drawn into a culture of status-seeking and sororities. Mapping different pathways available to MU students, the authors demonstrate that the most well-resourced and seductive route is a party pathway, if you will, anchored in the Greek system and facilitated by the administration. This pathway exerts influence over the academic and social experiences of all students. And while it benefits the affluent and well-connected, Armstrong and Hamilton make clear how it seriously disadvantages the majority of students. This book is eye-opening and provocative. Paying for the party reveals how outcomes can differ so dramatically for those whom universities enroll. This is thought-provoking material. And Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong is with us right now to discuss this book and so much more. Hello, Dr. Armstrong. How are you today? Hi, I'm great. Glad to be here. Oh, glad you are with us. Let's get to it because this book is so exciting. It offers so much insight into a world that so many of us want to know more about. First off, tell our listeners more about your professional and academic background and what motivated you to co-author the new book, Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. 
Hi, yeah. I'm an associate professor in sociology and organizational studies at the University of Michigan. Um, and I worked on this book with my co-author, Laura Hamilton, who's also a sociologist, and she's currently at the University of California, Merced. Um, and as sociologists and sociologists of youth, family, gender, sexuality, um, yes. uh, education, we, we, um, we um, were actually just really interested in the young people that the sorts of young people that we were teaching and that were kind of around us in our, in the course of doing, you know, doing our, our, our teaching and research. Okay. And, yeah, and in fact, um, we were um, really interested actually in the sex lives of students. Um, so actually, when we went into the residence hall, we had a room in a residence hall where we started the study. We were really actually curious about their kind of sexual practices, hooking up and all of that. Okay. And it's, it's really, class kind of emerged over the course of the study. We got in the residence hall, we started talking with them, we started learning about these young women's lives, 50 young women who lived on this floor, and um, we, we wanted to know more. So we kept asking them and asking them and asking them so we, so, to, until we ended up following them um, all the way through college, interviewing them every year, um, even after um, they graduated well and that some did not. Um, and that's what, that's, it's that kind of over time perspective and realizing what um, the different kind of backgrounds they came from that led us to really think about social class and how it mattered. Intriguing. So, Dr. Armstrong, it's fair to say that you and Dr. Hamilton thought that you were embarking on a whole nother journey, really, talking about gender and sexuality. And it was after observing after a while that you said, no, no, this conversation, this observation, this study is not about sexuality at all. It really is about class, right? Yeah, that's 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 kind of what happened. I mean, the sexuality didn't drop out of it. We've written a lot and have, are participating in kind of the national conversation about college women and hooking up and and all of that. But what we really just didn't expect was was the sort of dominance of sort of social class in in the whole in the whole um, picture. I mean, when we moved into the onto the floor, there was these women were there and they seemed really similar to us. They their names okay. were the same. Um, they um, they were all like traditional age students. Um, in fact, they were all white. Something we thought was somewhat problematic in this day and age. Okay. Where we kind of assume that our our higher education institutions should be more diverse. Yes. Um, but we found that they were really much more varied by social class than we expected. For example, some of the women on the floor were so wealthy that um, money was simply no object at all. Their fathers owned companies or were really high-level executives. They just didn't – money was not a constraint in any way in their lives. And yet some of the other women on the floor, their fathers did jobs like working as electricians or their mothers okay. worked doing child care or um, – engaging in kind of other activities like that. And um, they, we found that these, like, various different groups of women actually just didn't get along very well oh. at all. 
Okay, so, okay, I want to touch on the, the social class aspect of the book because mm-hmm. the book does offer insight into the world of individuals who come from diverse uh, social backgrounds. Like you just explained, obviously there were some young women who come from a very financially privileged background and some who come from, uh, you know, the typical all-American blue-collar working family. But tell me this, of the different classes or individuals you did observe, you know, what were major differences? So we talked about the money not being an option, but were there any differences like student expectations or backgrounds in terms of their interactions with others? You said they didn't really get along. Yeah. Well, they came, they came with very different expectations. Um, the, uh, the wealthy women, they all assumed that college was something to take for granted, that okay. they just assumed that they would go, that there was no question about it at all. Um, some of the – there was kind of two different groups of these wealthy women. One of them was, like, really, like, what they expected out of college was a social experience. Oh, they wow. were looking for a party. They selected the university. They attended – based on what they perceived as the quality of the social experience, the Greek system, big-time sports, um, how pretty the campus was, how pretty the other students were, um, <laughs> things like that, where some of the other wealthy students were really looking for, um, looking at kind of the majors offered and kind of who really kind of very geared to what their professional future would be and kind of, but yet nonetheless they still like assumed that they would go. Whereas the students from less affluent backgrounds, for some of them, um, they were like the only ones in their high school who managed to get to the flagship of the I state. See. They they were really what we called strivers. They were they were unique. They were really reaching beyond what their peers were doing. It was not an expectation. Some of them had parents who didn't actually even want them to go. Wow. Um, yeah. But I have a question for you. So, and I don't want to spill the beans too much because we're going to talk about your final uh, observation and conclusions. But if we're talking about different social classes, and just like you point out so well, that money does play a factor uh, to a large degree of social class. So, the ones that came from less financially privileged backgrounds, is it fair to say that they came into college with the expectation that they would have to work harder to succeed? Is that fair to say? I think they. I think they kind of understood that. I mean, they actually didn't really understand very well what they were getting into okay. at all. I mean, one thing was that they would all, they all had to kind of work for money while they were in school, while the rich girls didn't at all. I and see. actually, one thing they found out pretty quickly was that working for money, um, having really like a lot of responsibilities to kind of pay their own way, meant that they really couldn't experience the college experience. They couldn't be going out to parties all the time. They couldn't afford to pay for those parties. They couldn't participate in the Greek system. Even the fees, the $50 T-shirt to um, just participate in the sorority recruitment process was kind of a heads up that this that, that going down that path was going to cost them more money than they could even consider. So, um, so yeah, the, the whole experience was kind of different from beginning to end. And, and they, they didn't understand how different it um, you know, they they just didn't have they they didn't have like friends and family members who were who were kind of really able to sort of tell them like, yeah. exactly what to what to expect. Wow, and still young themselves and trying to really find their way in the world. Mm-hmm. You know, what were the major differences between the students in terms of graduation rate and job placement after your five years of observation? 
Um, well, the wealthy students were much more likely to graduate, at least from this university. Okay. Most of the, the students from really working class backgrounds, um, they um, actually none of them graduated from this university during uh, the time frame of our study. Most all of them um, left the university and went to kind of um, four-year regional branch campuses. Okay. I mean, the, and the reasons for leaving were usually kind of um, kind of complex. There was usually multiple factors boyfriend back home, um, the, it was just simply too expensive, they didn't like being around all these rich girls, um, they, they, the part, they realized that the party scene was distracting them from their kind of career goals, okay. their professional goals, um, all those things led them to leave. Um, so, so at the time we left them, they weren't employed yet at all, because they were still in wow. school. Um, the affluent women were, um, they were generally in um, either in graduate school or in pretty good jobs um, at, at the time we left them. So I have to ask this, Dr. Armstrong, because I'm not a sociologist like you. So I, I'm looking on it from the outside and, and trying to be objective but not having your expertise. I'm fascinated that you described, obviously, uh, groups of women and one of them being the ones who from working class families, but yet they were the ones not completing the college within the five years, rather, and, and dropping out or transferring to other schools for varied reasons. So that almost makes me think or challenge the thought of the hard work exit that we talked about, but I guess it goes back into you saying they really didn't understand what they were really getting into and the social aspect is what didn't work out. Yeah, well, they worked really hard, and 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 um, I think I think one of the kind of um, sort of cultural myths that circulates so much in the U.S. is this notion that hard work will always pay off, yes. um, or pays off equally. And it really, I mean, it did pay off for these um, for the sort of less privileged young women. They were smart. They were they were industrious. They were they were resilient. They okay. overcame obstacles, and they and they did by the end of the study end up better off than their peers who they left behind in these teeny little towns. Okay. But that work didn't lead them to end up in the same place as, as the sort of people who kind of started, um, you know, the whole process with much, much more advantage. They didn't catch up. Um, they did okay, but they okay. didn't catch up. But, oh, and I want to bring this up because this is a touchy subject that a lot of us, men or women, uh, don't really like talking about of any racial background, any financial background. But is it fair to say from your observation, obviously, that you're saying that a lot of times the classes or individuals coming from within different classes felt uncomfortable or awkward around each other? Is that fair to say? Oh, yeah, they were very, I mean, yes. They, 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 they culturally, these groups didn't get along. Like, in terms of um, a number of them were assigned to have roommates okay. of a kind of higher or lower social class. None of those roommate relationships even survived the year. None, none oh, of those wow. individuals became friends. In most cases, the more privileged women moved out and kind of abandoned the other oh, women before wow. the end of the year. And in most cases, they didn't understand the conflict as being about money or social class. They just, like, they just thought, like, oh, we just didn't get along or she was less okay. social. Like one young woman. She wasn't going out and doing anything because she could, she didn't have any money to do the kinds of things that her roommate, whose father was the chief financial officer of a company, was doing. Yes. But this this girl, she just thought her roommate was antisocial and just like not very nice. Okay. <laughs> 
she never even realized that the reason why she was saying no was because she couldn't afford to go. Um, and it's interesting well, how our backgrounds shape our attitudes, isn't it? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, and often in ways that we're not really aware of at yes. all. You know, the book offers groundbreaking research on so many levels, but I've got to, excuse me, I have to know this. What was your biggest revelation of the less financially privileged group? And then again, I want to piggyback, what was your biggest revelation of the more financially privileged group? Well, I think um, I think we really expected those that left the university to really not do well at all. Okay. But, um, what was really surprising to us is that is that they actually did better after leaving this kind of flagship university when oh, they wow. went, when they moved to the branch campuses and they they ended up with um, people around them that they liked better and actually better classroom instruction okay. and majors that were more suited to them. They actually did better. Um, and we, we just didn't expect that at all because the, 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 the sociological research suggests that it's always um, beneficial to go to the more prestigious university, the okay. most prestigious university one can get in. And I think that's probably generally true, but it's not, I think, always true. There, I think, okay. there some, some circumstances in which um, it just is sort of, if the fit is really bad, um, I see. probably not a good thing to do. And is it fair to say that the individuals from the working class, blue-collar class group, if you will, that they felt perhaps more comfortable because the students in the regional universities or branches were similar to them? Is that fair to yeah, say? That, yes, that definitely. I mean, that, that definitely made a factor in, was a factor in the comfort. But that doesn't mean that um, the kind of cross-class interaction or cross-group interaction yes is doomed. What it just means is that um, higher education, post-secondary institutions need to really think about how they're going to integrate all the different groups of students they bring on campus, okay. what kinds of um, ways are they going to allow people to learn to kind of talk across these differences and understand yeah. where different people are coming from. Um, you know, it's possible. It's possible that they could have had a better experience yeah. had there been, um, you know, some assistance from you. Know, Absolutely. And you know what we do realize, and I just say this obviously not being a professional sociologist like yourself, but, you know, when I look around, even in children's classrooms or if we're out and about in society, people, human beings do tend to group with what they have similarities with. Is that fair to say? Absolutely. And, and, and sociologists kind of refer to that with kind of this kind of theoretical term of homophily. Okay. And all that basically means is kind of birth of a feather flock together. Okay, and basically people hang out with people just like themselves, and it's really hard to kind of for most people to move across those differences. Right. Um, but generally, if people actually just hang out with people just like themselves, that produces segregation and inequality, yes. and it's generally yes. not good. Which your book so, life. definitely touches on. We have uh, just a few more minutes, but quick question. What was your biggest revelation of the more financially privileged group? And with that one was that downward mobility is, is possible. Even among those who attend and graduate from college, not all college degrees are treated equal. Not okay. all are, are um, going to translate into the type of job we expect that a college degree should get. And so, for example, there were two young women who 
Um, they were they were from pretty privileged backgrounds, but in college they did absolutely nothing. Oh, wow. <laughs> they were not interested in their, the subject matter they studied. They uh, they didn't know why they picked the majors that they picked. They didn't get particularly good grades. They made no new friends. They participated in no extracurricular activities. They did not do any work for money. They basically did nothing. Wow. <laughs> and, and the, but they graduated. And when they graduated, they, they were not able to get jobs um, that would require a college degree because they, they hadn't actually done anything with what I have come to think of in some ways as the opportunity space yeah. of college. It's not just the degree That's right. that matters. It's, it's what you do That's right. um, to distinguish yourself during this, this space that has where there's this tremendous opportunity. It's the experience. I mean, it's nothing. Yeah, yeah. You know, but quickly before we get out of here, I've got another a few seconds left. From your perspective, have any economic trends influenced the collegiate culture? Um, well, yeah, I think in, in the kind of big picture that um, when um, states invest, when the government invests less, in um, in these in our public universities, okay. then that leads these universities to rely more on tuition. Okay. Relying more on tuition means um, gearing the um, what's on offer socially and academically more to the needs and agendas of more affluent students. They, okay. they just become more attentive to their best best paying customers. I see. So simply, who can afford the tuition without financial assistance? Right, right. Okay. Those those students become very, very sought after, very desirable. It's like the kind of all the attention of the universities. How do we keep these students? How do we make them happy? Yes. Do they need to have a fancier climbing gym? Yes. Okay. <laughs> How? Why are Why are they selecting this particular state university versus that state university? Do we need to have a fancier dorm? I see. I see. Everything else but education or academics per se. Yeah, well, if that's what they care, if, you know, if it's if it's the majors that these that the particular group is going to pay the most money care about, those would those would become relevant as well. Yeah, um, it's like, but just paying attention to that, those particular students aren't going to need um, kind of the um, in, you know intensive advising services that. Uh, first generation or working class students are going to need. They're not going to need probably the extensive um, compensation for like really really poor high school education. They're yeah. going to need the kind of integration into into wow. the social aspects of college life. Um, you know, your new book is so thought provoking, and it's just an in depth conversation that needs to continue to go. Before we get out of here, what do you hope readers walk away with after they complete reading? Paying for the party: How college maintains any. Quality. Yeah, I mean, what I hope for is that stu- that people will, well, that they will read it, yes. <laughs> and that they will they will realize that they need to do research and kind of make really careful decisions about you know their own decisions about what kind of post secondary education to pursue. That they that they think really hard before taking out a lot of debt or kind of pursuing okay. something just because um, it's, you know, what everyone else is doing or what they think that they're supposed to want, but that they actually, like, you know, investigate and find out yes. what a particular degree is likely to get them as an individual. Awesome, awesome guidance and advice. The book is out on shelves, rave reviews, critically acclaimed already, and we're so thankful that Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong, the co-author of the book, along with Dr. Laurel Hamilton, the book, again, is Paying for the Party, How College Maintains Inequality. Before we get out of here, Dr. Armstrong, how can our listeners learn more about your book? 
Well, um, it's it's for sale on Amazon. Okay. So if they just type, go into Amazon and type in paying for the party, you can find it. Um, the Harvard University Press website, um, which is the publisher of the book, they okay. also have a lot of information about the book. And yeah. that can also be found just by typing in Harvard University Press. Um, yeah. Uh, yeah. Wow. Well, congratulations on all of the reviews, all the success uh, thus far, and I'm sure this book will continue a very critical conversation for our nation. Take care, Dr. Armstrong. We are now quickly approaching the end of the program, and what a show today. So thankful for Dr. Elizabeth Armstrong joining us. Join us next Tuesday evening at 7.30 p.m. right here on the ever-popular Blog Talk Radio Network. More hot topics and relevant dynamic guests to come. Stay with us, everyone. Email the show at letstalkshana at gmail.com. All show content original. Copyright 2013 by Shana Thornton. Let's get to one of my favorite segments right now, musical spotlight time. Today we will feature the music from the ever-popular Henley Varner Band. The song selection is Can't Hide Love. Can't Hide Love, originally performed by the band Earth, Wind, and Fire. This recording was captured live by the Henley Barner Band. Thus, no studio enhancements at all. Nothing like live, real music. Here we go. Music from the Henley Barner Band. Enjoy the week, everyone. Then, Judy discovered Jumbacasino.com. It's my little escape. Now, Judy's the life of the party. Oh, baby, Mama's bringing home the bacon. Whoa, take it easy, Judy. The Chumba life is for everybody. So go to Chumbacasino.com and play over 100 casino-style games. Join today and play for free for your chance to redeem some serious prizes. Chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. Voidware prohibited by law. 18 plus terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Tax day is coming. Oh, no. But if you sign up for Robinhood Gold's IRA with a 3% match, you can get up to $195 for the 2023 tax year. Oh, yeah. Sign up at Robinhood.com slash boost by tax day to get the biggest contribution match on the market. Subscription fees apply. Investing involves risk. 3% match requires gold for one year from first match. Must keep IRA for five years. Robinhood Financial LLC, member SIPC.